Hello. Awesome. Ah! Hi, how's it going? So I had a moment of panic. I was like, is this being video recorded? Because I am eating tater tots. And no, you can eat what you want, girl. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm not camera ready. Welcome to the In Vino Fabulum podcast. I'm Patrice. And I'm Laura. We're your co-hosts for the In Vino Fabulum. That means in wine story. We think there are a number of tales to be shared about women and wine. This is a space to offer a narrative and chat about both. Today we're excited to chat with Joan Collier and Marvette Lacey to talk about sister circles, hashtag side sister, research methods, camaraderie, and more. Yay! Welcome! Hi. 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 All right. So I will start by uh, introducing Joan. She's a tra- she's trained in higher education and college student affairs scholarship and administration. She has contributed to student success, residence life, and civic engagement work and research about black college student experience and development in higher ed. She is co-founder and content contributor for Cita Sister and CitaSister.com, a black feminist womenist project dedicated to community building among black women, encouraging an emancipatory citation practice that centers black women, and developing a black feminist womanist identity and praxis for black women within and beyond student affairs and higher ed. She is a proud alumna of Georgia State University and the University of Georgia and is a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. I'm really excited to learn more about this and talk with you today. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, let's not forget our other special guest that's a partner in crime, <laughs> Marvette Lacey. She's the founder of the Qual Scholars, where she helps doctors, doctoral students understand the quality of research process so they, they can successfully complete their dissertations and graduate. Girl, you're on my, you speak my research talk. Her research focuses on using critical theories to explore, identify development of college women, the dynamics of power and privilege in sexual violence, and response movements, and the intersections of race and gender in student activism. Marvette currently lives in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where she also works as the Women's Rescue Center Director at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Prior to coming to Milwaukee, Marvette has also served in areas of residence life and housing, student conduct, campus-based women's centers, and first-year programs. And I'm so thrilled to have these ladies join us because I was really excited to meet you back at ACPA, that College Student Educator Conference in March, where you both shared about your research and all the great work you're doing. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. You two are doing too much, but is there anything that we forgot about what you do in your life and times? I don't know. I could go on. Whenever like people read my intros, I'm like, who are they talking about? <laughs> no, it's good. Um, I was so thrilled. I showed up to a session um, at ACPA and I um, was thrilled and interested and intrigued. And what got me interested was the talk about sister circles for research. And I, I guess, could you explain that to our listeners who might have some idea, no idea, a little bit of idea, what that is, and it's kind of what that means for the research that you both did. Yeah. Um, so what? So I, I'm the extrovert of the two, so that's why I always start talking first. Not because <laughs> I know everything; I just be ready to go. <laughs> the floor is yours, Joan. Go on. Yeah. So Marvette, jump in. Um, so yeah. So the circle uh, methodology was coined by Dr. Latoya Johnson. Um, at the University of Georgia uh, in 2015, and she um, was looking at mentorship amongst teachers in the K-12 system. Uh, and the thought was that you know, focus groups are dope; they're cool, they're chill. But when you're talking about Black women, their experiences, and their work, then you should have something that's more culturally uh, competent, more culturally grounded as a methodology. Uh, and so she uh, incorporated herself into the circle. She's also a teacher. Uh, and so she, I'm not sure she's a teacher, let me not lie, but she incorporated herself into the circles. And so the circles literally look like the same practice that's been happening for centuries where women get together. Uh, and so in those spaces, uh, you know, we've theorized what happens with Black feminist um, epistemologies and how we communicate. So the ethic of care, the ethic 
<clears throat> the ethic of uh, recognizing the emotions uh, that tell us things that are ways of knowing. Uh, and so she formalized it. Uh, and so when Marvette and I were starting off our dissertation works, um, you know, trying to figure out how you learn about sense of belonging for black women in doc programs and how you learn about identity development for black graduate women, uh, the methodology uh, was sent to us by Kiana Green, who's at Michigan State. And she said, my friend was at a conference. She talked about this. So she heard Toya talk about it. You should look into it. And so I wrote it up, sent it to my chair. My chair said yes. And I hopped on as fast as I could before she changed her mind because it was <laughs> new. <laughs> and you, you know, you sometimes take chances. And so um, in my work, it's looked like my dissertation work. Uh, and then also the uh, the black grad women's photo shoot that we do every year um, back at UGA. So uh, Sister Circles basically looks like black women are your participants. The researcher is also a black woman um, and you are part of it uh, through and through. So you're asking the it, um, it's a qualitative method. And so it can be messy and messy is OK. So like Marvette and I varied on how we analyze our own voice within our research. Um, I chose not to use my words, even though I gave myself a pseudonym. So when you look at my chart of participants, I'm in that, but I didn't analyze my own words. Whereas Marvette chose to use her words. Um, so there's some philosophical pieces there that we're still teasing out because it is still so new. Uh, Marvette, what am I forgetting? Wait, can, before we go to the more research, can I ask you just to define sister circles? So we have listeners of different backgrounds and oh. what is that? So let's, because you created a great research method, but it comes from another thing altogether. Oh, Marvette, you want to take this? Um, so John alluded to it a little bit, but historically, um, and I, I think women all together can relate to this, right? Just coming together and sharing your life experiences with other women. And historically, that may have looked like um, when we, um, you know, you come into the kitchen and everyone's preparing a meal and you're all just talking about your life. Maybe you're talking about your home life. Maybe something happened. Maybe it's with your children, right? And so um, particularly in the Black community and women, um, historically, it's this notion of sister circles. Like I have my group of women, my core group of black women, whether they're family, they're friends who I turn to for support. Maybe I just turn to for just trying to understand what I'm going through in my life. Um, or maybe I need help with something. I have a question. And so they're going to be the first people I tend to turn to. And these things are not necessarily like formal all the time, it's not um, necessarily like you have a set day and time where you all get together and you're going to have a conversation, but maybe this happens in an informal capacity. And so I believe like a lot of black families, black people, black women can relate to having Sunday dinners. Um, and Dr. Latoya Johnson used the same method in her dissertation, but this idea of having Sunday dinner where y'all come together and maybe the women gather um, in a certain area of the house and they're just sharing what happened during their week and they're leaning on each other for support. So it's an informal gathering where we're all comfortable. We all get to let, let our hair down. We just get to talk about like this happened to me at work or this happened um, to me when I went to the grocery store and oh, I have this question or I don't know, what do I do in my hair this week? It's um, it could be really serious. It could be really fun, but it's just your core group of people that you're coming together and you're being able to just be yourself and talk through things. And so we use that um, same process in our research of gathering black women together. Um, both of us were in someone's home, one of our participants' homes, and we wanted our participants to feel as comfortable as possible. And so while some of them may have had no previous connection with one another, it was still us being very intentional and saying, please come as you are. You don't need to look a certain way. If you want to come in your pajamas, great. I think at one point, someone in my um, uh, one of my circles, she was literally putting on makeup um she's getting ready to go out on a date like people I mean there's you have your kids we have food 
um, people are walking around. And so it's very informal and it's very comfortable, yet we're still talking about whatever the topic is at that day. And there's audio recording happening. At one point I had video recording because that's still my data. Um, but in, inside the moment, it's meant to be very familial and very familiar um, as a, like an informal process. I can get behind that. We encourage not brushing your hair, and that's why we podcast. So <laughs> I support this. <laughs> so your participants are Black women, um, mainly educators and or doctoral students like yourself, or did you have a different kind of group or samples between the two of you? No, uh, we both had Black graduate students, but mine was uh, purposely for Black women in doctoral programs, uh, mm -hmm. whereas Marvette had uh, master's and doc students in hers. Uh, Kiana Green had uh, either master's or doc, I want to say, are all just women, Black women in doctoral programs who had studied abroad. Uh, and then Lamisha Andrews, who also used sister circle methodology in a, uh, in a like a, a pilot study, uh, I think she had, I'm not sure which population, undergrad or graduate, but she had students uh, in her study who were also black women. Um, so, yeah, we've only done it in education so far. Um, we haven't branched out to other things. Even with the sister circle um, photo shoot, we're trying to play with some new um, methods within sister circle. Uh, even that is still black women in doctoral programs, graduate programs or alumna of the institution that we were at. So I'm interested to hear about some of your findings. I work a lot with faculty and helping them design inclusive classrooms. And I'm wondering what you learned about the student experiences and what implications that might have for course design. Mm -hmm. Or campus uh, life even, yeah. Yeah, so uh, Marvette, do you wanna go first? Um, no, you can go ahead. <laughs> Uh, so my study was on sense of belonging for black women in doc programs. I only had, uh, there are 15 of us total. Uh, we're at a historically white institution in the American South, use your imagination. And, um, the findings were that, uh, when it came to feeling included or finding their connection to people, uh, their sense of community connection to other black women was central to that. Uh, and so that looked like, um, study groups, writing groups, just we met at the, you know, black graduate student organization meeting, um, all that good jazz. Our relationships with faculty where the faculty members saw them as people and not just the sources of production, uh, which is really helpful, which seems really basic. But um, that was, I mean, loud and clear. Uh, and then um, relationships with uh, non-antagonistic relationships with peers. Um, that, that was their sense of, uh, touching base on campus or finding their belonging. When it came to not being included, it really centered on, um, antagonistic relationships with faculty and peers. Um, and some of the antagonism was around race, uh, particularly for some of the women. And then, um, just disconnects from colleagues, uh, could it be around race, could be around experience, could be around class. Um, all that sort of thing. So, so some things to consider with one of my applications was that uh, faculty really being thoughtful about the way that they're connecting with students, not just in the classroom, but beyond the classroom, because yes, you know, if they're going tenure track, um, if they're looking to get into the academy, their productivity is absolutely important. And these are still real life people. We have to um, engage them. Hopefully we would be engaging them beyond just did you turn this in? Like, do you have this manuscript together? Do you have these revisions done? Have you been to the lab? Have you done all these sorts of things that can show up on a CV? So beyond their CV, how do you care about them? In terms of inclusion, we really have to get to the root of whiteness and anti-blackness. And so when you're in, when you're in historically white spaces, uh, people can be friendly, but friendly does not mean that they get it. So there was one student, one participant who talked about being at a departmental event the person who's hosting the event controls the money for the department and introduces when they're doing the welcome to the event that's at their home says, and I'm using their pseudonym says, 
We want to welcome everyone to our annual insert event. We're glad that everyone is here, including our token, Charlotte. And so there's a lot of students who are not familiar with the negative connotations of the word token because they're international students. And then they begin talking to her and saying, yeah, welcome token, welcome token, welcome token. And so since she can't respond to her faculty member, she then is having this, you know, heated discussion with her colleagues. Um, and so when we talk about the faculty member and their almost inability to see like that, that's not appropriate. It's absolutely in, I mean, it's absolutely inappropriate. It's racially tinged, and that's me being very nice about it. Uh, if someone's a tenured faculty member and they don't understand why that's inappropriate and wrong and does not call for inclusion, we have a problem. Uh, so if there was a way to incentivize inclusive or equity measures in the tenuring process or in the promotion process, that would be a structural way to actually encourage faculty members to think beyond, am I nice? I have air quotes up to people, um, but am I actually getting at some foundational stuff that's so embedded in our culture that it doesn't even click for me that's happening? One of the key things you also brought up um, besides and with the racial tension is the power dynamics. Oh my gosh, absolutely. So you're talking about doc students so graduate student socialization is very much focused on my field and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's in my program and in my department. So if there's some janky stuff happening in department or in the program, right, right. then the student socialization as a grad student is, is kind of off. And so even if you have a part-time student or full-time student, all but one of my participants was a full-time doc student. So they were always in class, always in school, always doing... We're, I mean, school was their life, right? And so if doc students are not in a position to challenge faculty, I mean, junior faculty aren't in a position to challenge senior faculty most of the time. And so how do you then expect a doc student to challenge a tenured faculty member who controls assistantship money, right? So if I say something to you, Potentially, there's money that I'm not getting for conferences that I have to have in order to present, in order to get my CV together. There might be some tension between that person and my chair or my committee. Uh, if they don't like me, they can say bad, like bad things about me and you know muck up my name. And my only recourse is hoping right that there's another faculty member who can stand in the middle and say, whoa, whoa, that was inappropriate. That was wrong. Here's why. Let me get you together. Hey, student, I'm sorry. That was inappropriate. Let's try to reconcile that. And if that's not happening, then we're just saying, doc, students, get through as best you can. Right. Like, oh, sorry. My bad. I said something really horrible. Right, row. You know, see yeah. you on Monday. There's a lot of politicking and mm -hmm. it's not even the challenging them. It's awareness, like bringing awareness that this is what you're saying and how it's uh, making me feel or how I'm being misrepresented or marginalized based on language actions. Yeah. You said so much. There's lots, there's lots to unpack in this. Um, yeah. and you're right. Like I think before we get to the classroom, when we're having our terminal degrees, whether it's MFA, um, EDD, PhD, whatever that looks like, this is the culture that we're nourishing for the future. So they're going to perpetuate the same behaviors and actions if we don't consider changing what's already there and what's already within our faculty. Absolutely. So I hope I provided some things I would love for faculty to do is real. I mean, I would love if we change the, you know, tenure structure where the equity was a part of that um, evaluation. You know, people had to show that they were being inclusive, building equity in education, which would mean that we would have to recognize that education is inherently not equitable to people. That's a different conversation. And then um, finding ways or crafting out ways, imagining ways that, um, faculty could, you know, be held accountable for their actions when they do things and not just sweep it under, but at least addressing power dynamics between faculty and uh, students. Um, and then, and yeah, that's all I have for now. That was great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Marvette, what are your thoughts? Um, yeah. I know you had some different kind of group and, uh, you had a mixed group of masters and doctoral um, black women in your group. I don't know what you learned from your study. Yeah. So for me, um, a little honest moment, by the time I got to my dissertation, I was like done. I wanted to be done. 
with a degree so much to the point that I was questioning, like, do I even need to finish at this point because I'm over it um, in terms of what my experience had been um, and throughout my doctoral process. And so having conversations with my chair and like, you know, you can you and with Joan as well and other um, sister scholars, it was no, you came too far to quit. And so how can you finish this? How can you make this dissertation process something meaningful um, and make it your own? So to back up, we teach, and I'm saying we, the collectively in terms of academia, we teach the dis- dissertation process is supposed to be a learning exercise, right? How you learn how to become a researcher. And the best way to learn is by doing, you have to, you know, hit your own project, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so try to give as much instruction as possible to students of like, this is the way that you do your dissertation process. And particularly students who I work with and just friends who are in programs, it comes up of like, I know that my chair, my committee or my class taught me to do research this one way, this very rigid and nice word I'll use, traditional way. Um, But that doesn't feel genuine to me. Right. It doesn't feel like it speaks to who I am as a person. It doesn't feel like um, how I think about these things. And particularly when we're talking about qualitative research. You as a researcher, is the re- you're the research instrument, right? And so if you can't bring your whole self to your process and to who you are as a researcher, if people are saying research is only about being objective, then how does that honor who you are and how can you really be an effective instrument? And so I really wanted to use my project as a way to say, no, you don't have to do research that way and you can bring your whole self to the process and let me show you how. Um and so I would say the, one of the biggest things I learned is being able to experience having a committee and particularly having a chair who just was like, I don't, maybe I don't completely understand what it is that you want to do, but I'm going to get out the way enough to allow you to do it and figure it out on your own. Yeah, there's some be- there's going to be some pieces that you have to do and some requirements you're going to have to meet, but you want to try out this new methodology, go right ahead. You want to define your paradigm and the way that you approach this work differently than what I may have seen in the past, go right ahead because I, I'm interested in learning. And I don't think in dissertation, I mean, in doctoral programs or professional programs that we allow students to explore different ways of learning um, and different ways of doing research because we have gotten so caught up and there's only one way to do it. And so I would say the biggest thing that I got from that is how do you allow students to learn and explore who they are and what type of researcher, what type of professional, what type of teacher, et cetera, that they want to be, even if this is supposed to be like an intro activity into learning what it means to be a researcher? That should be a question for every faculty at every start of the year, and not just orientation. I think that's a great question. Like, how do you actually let your learners learn how and explore different ways. I think I'm going to write that down so I can have that in front of you as I start uh, the academic year. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You um, talked a little bit about uh, citations and you know, having um, citations from black women. And I, when I was looking on the website, I was wondering, because one of the things when I, I I look at is, you know, like what are the readings and things that are included in a course? And I was wondering, are there any resources that can help people, um, you know, draw from those types of, you know, that type of literature? Um, so I, I, so whenever people ask me, who am I using? Um, who do I cite? So of course I, uh, think to basics of from what for me is black feminisms, which is bell hooks, Patricia Hill Collins, Cynthia Dillard. Um, I think about ways to center, uh, Dr. Natasha Kroom or Lori Patton Davis. So, um, women whose work already informs what I'm doing, what I know. Um, I tell people think about how you legitimize, and that's an air quote, what is it that you're about to do that's counterculture? So Patricia Hill Collins would say, um, as a critical scholar, if your work isn't pushing someone, it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. If it's so 
um, that if it is accepted within the mainframe, it's not pushing enough because what's central is what's comfortable and what's comfortable has been conditioned. Uh, so you use uh, these other sources to then make room for you to push out and say, I know that we usually don't use lived experience, but here's why I'm using it. And here's who's already talked about it in academic sense. And then this gives me the citation I need to push on a little further. So when I'm talking about lived experience, I'll cite CRT or I'll cite Cynthia Dillard or I'll cite Patricia Hill Collins. And that gives me room to branch out so I can keep pushing and pushing and make room for lived experience in my work. So that's what that looks like for me. So when I made my syllabus, um, I knew you, 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 it's it's hard to talk a good game and then not use the work, right? So if you're talking about people of color or any marginalized group and people who are on your syllabi are people who've talked about said group but aren't from the group and lived experience is part of a critical framework, it's not matching up. So it takes more attention because the big, like the quote-unquote traditional people in student affairs higher ed are all white men. For the most part, a large majority of the ones who have constant citations of those people. So if I put them to the side and I bring in what's marginal, then I can shift conversations, introduce histories and realities that haven't had as much amplification. And that's how I get at my stuff. And I just hit up my sister scholars and be like, hey, who y'all using? What y'all doing? Let me see what you got. <laughs> Um, and I would just add briefly to that, um, Kimberly Crenshaw and, and talking about intersectionality. Um, and then for me, because of my topic was around like the relationships, both fictive and like in real life relationships that black women have with one another in order to help them understand who they are. Um, so I didn't give a little a background on my dissertation. It was, it was more of how, if I made it to this point, right, if I'm a, so I'm a first generation student and I made it to the PhD process and no one in my family or friends have made it to um, this far in terms of formalized education, who then do I look at as like role models and who then do I talk to or see as an example of who I could be? Um, because my family and the women um, in my family and my friends from home have served as good role models and they still do, right? To a certain extent about like who I am, but because they haven't navigated this world that I'm in now, I need also additional models. And yeah, maybe I can look at my peers, but if we're looking at numbers, there's not many Black women um, who are probably even in my program. Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe I'm the only one in my institution. And so I started to consider, like, how do Black women look at other Black women, particularly in media, on television? So we have characters like Olivia Pope and Mary Jane Paul and being Mary Jane, um, these very powerful Black women characters who are operating in spaces and like all like controlling these spaces and people are listening to them and they're number one and they're the only ones who look like them. And so I can look at that. And even though this may not be quote unquote, a real person, right. Mm -hmm. um, or it, it may not be someone that I actually talk to. I can still look at them and say like, that's what's possible. That's what I can reach for. And that's what I can do in my doctoral process and in academia. And so a lot of what I use to ground that is hip hop feminism and mm -hmm. a big voice. And that is Joan Morgan. And so really looking at the writers who are talking about the ways, how do we marry hip hop and media consumption that we grew up with and that we have a close tie with, how do we marry that in our, in our academic self? Um, and so I would add those two to the list as well. I also need to shout out Pam Felder who does, does did really great work on black doctoral student socialization. Um, as someone who also I incorporated into my work, I don't know where my brain was. Mm -hmm. Cool. And your domain, both of you are in education and in close to student affairs and higher education programs. I think it's really good you are pushing those domains because that's who's guiding our future ways or institutions need to go and need to be. Um, so I think that's excellent. Having that multi-lens and thinking about your literature as not just who set this tradition or this theory, but who's also challenging and pushing at the norms that maybe shouldn't be the norms anymore. I don't know. 
So agreed. Yeah. Um, so thinking about, um, we're going to switch modes a little bit and, I think what the work you were doing, we're going to include some citations to some of your work in the notes for our listeners so they can follow up. What are you doing now and what are your hopes to go forward on your threads of research? So I know how you get to the end of a doctoral program and you feel like you've burnt yourself out. Um, what are your future kind of hopes on what's percolating, whether it's in practice or scholarship? Um, what do you hope to come from what you learned that maybe you're a little bit far away from it now that you can go, huh, this is what I'm thinking about now that this is done? That's a big question. <laughs> it's not, it's just, uh, so if I think out loud, um, I want to continue work with Sister Circle uh, methodology um, as a method, but then Sister Circle is just also as a practice, like a, mm-hmm. a constant practice to bring Black women together, to create space. Um, I think there's a lot of healing that can happen. There's a lot of joy that can happen there. Um, and so the, re- the resistance that Black women in historically white spaces have to engage in even in historically black spaces, right? There's there's always um, always stuff that you're having to push back on, structural and like interpersonally. And so when I talk about developing a black feminist praxis, I mean like how are we developing our ethics around it? How are we developing our praxis around it? And I think sister circles um, informally let us do some of that when we are intentional with it. I, I think we get some more progress with it. So I would love to do that and keep up on like how that has worked with faculty members and staff members and students. Um, I think about our Black women's grad, our uh, Black grad women's photo shoot and how uh, we want to maybe think about like participatory action research to get the women who are in it, in it, in research as like training researchers and having this time of celebration in this active like sister circle moment. Um, so that it's not just like a textbook thing where you have to go look at a text. You can see um, how that's moving around. Uh, I, I'm moving back into administration and teaching. Um, I, I love the theorizing pieces about it because that's when my brain gets to go and be lofty and have fun. But I really appreciate putting what I know from books and from my work into practice in higher education and in student affairs administration. Uh, so for me, I'm looking to go back that route, but I do enjoy teaching because it is a joy for me. Um, and yeah, if I, if I can blend those two, where I get to teach and do the practical every day of, um, here's what we know, here's what we want to do. It's easy to critique. The critique is the easy part, but what do you build with it? And so I want to build in practice, even if that means little by little, teaching students how to build the world that they want, how to challenge systems, how to survive within those systems and thrive within them. And so that's how I, uh, administrative practice uh, and teaching are how I go about that. So yes, I need to be able to critique, but what are you going to build? Um, and that was really brought home to me by Brittany Cooper in Eloquent Rage. So I was like, you're right, sis, you're right. The critique, got that. But what do you build? And Sister Circle Methodology is a building block for that uh, in practice and as a method. It's a building block in moving forward in our field. Yeah. I was going to say, Joan, it sounds like you're doing some of this already with Brittany Williams, a shine out to her and cite a sister because that's action-based. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, in my experience, Sometimes in the academy, we get really caught up in what, what we can think, right? How 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 hard our critiques can be, um, but breaking stuff apart is easy. I mean, it's it's a skill you have to learn so that your critique is together. But once you get it, then what? So you don't tow everything up. Now, what are you going to do? What is left? And so the hard piece is building new stuff in mind of the critiques that you just gave to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So as you are trying to build new stuff, you build new muscles. So I can give you a critique and I can also host events that only 10 people show up to, but those 10 people had a great, great time. And while my end might be small, it's making lasting contributions. Well, as a qualitative scholar, I don't care about my end. End doesn't matter um, for me. Right. So I'm making the impact that I need to make and I'm still teaching, you know, whenever I teach. So yeah, I get so excited about it. So I'm just going to keep myself together over here and put myself back on mute. <laughs> <laughs> you have to make some ripples to make some waves. So that's yeah. good. 
Yeah, so I was going to add that I would say, like, um, both with Joan and Brittany inside the system and me with working with doctoral students, this piece of um, how do you, what is your praxis, right? So um, a lot of people we interact with, particularly Black women, say, yeah, I want to learn more about what black um, feminism, what does that mean? How does that show up? Not only in my day-to-day life, but also in my research. And so I do know that um, Joan and Brittany are talking about, like, how do we, you know, push that within inside the system of helping people not only to learn more about black feminism, but how to use that. And with me, I'm teaching people how to do that throughout their dissertation process. So I really want to see, I really want people to be informed And so when they go into the room with their committee and the committee can only talk about, well, why you only want to focus on black students or why you only want to focus on black teachers or black doctors or whatever the case, why does it have to be about black or why can't it just be general? What about the white students, doctors, teachers, et cetera? They can be informed um, and well-prepared on not only how to give an answer back to that, but to um, take it to another level. And so I'm I'm researching more and practicing more and trying to find out best ways to help people do that. Because for me, that is your praxis. That is how you take your criticalness and what you say you believe and put it into action even now because you even have a space to do that as a student and not to allow your faculty to tell you otherwise. I was going to say, I'm going to toot Marvette's horn because she might not. She does some amazing dissertation coaching, writing retreats, some editing transcripts and services. So we'll link you all up to her work. And I think you're doing some excellent things, which is building the foundations for others to keep climbing mm-hmm. and doing the scholarship and the practice and scholarship together. Thank you. And to switch gears just a little bit, I would love to hear if you have a favorite wine or other beverage of choice uh, your circles yeah oh well you know for research purposes we can't bring no drink with us that's an irb violation that's true good but- just checking your ethics that's all good <laughs> but when it's over then we have the informal ones uh joan is a dark liquor person i don't really drink very often so my vet is smirking on the other side of his camera um because it takes me a very long time to get through but i enjoy darker liquors so just pour me up a little piece and I'm I'm about good to go. Yeah. Uh, if I'm out being casual, I'll do like a Moscow mule in my cup. If they make me drink wine, it's a sweet kitty wine with way too much sugar. I like the Moscow mule, so fan. Yeah. Like a nice dessert wine. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't drink wine as much anymore because it interrupts my sleep but when I do it's a good Malbec or Merlot I'm a fan of the Ritz Um, but however my drink of choice would be bourbon whiskey Um, lately I've been doing a lot of Maker's Mark or a crown on ice that's it nothing else Um, when I'm trying to relax Sweet. <laughs> get along so well. <laughs> uh, and when, when you're when you're relaxing or after your circle time, is there a particular story or book or anything that resonates with you that you've read lately that you'd like to share with us? Other um, than all the wonderful things that you've already shared, <laughs> I I would. I'm thinking about a book that I read um, not too long ago, which um, probably seems weird in this context, um, but it is, well, that escalated quickly. Memoirs Memoirs and Mistakes of an Accidental Activist by Francesca Ramsey. Um, So Francesca started off on YouTube. Her um, video, Shit White Girls Say to Black Girls, went viral, and that sort of launched her career on YouTube. And now she has an online show with MTV called Decoded, where she breaks down um, topics and concepts related to social justice and diversity inclusion in a very um, informal way using pop culture references. Um, And so this book is not only talking about her life and how she came to the work, but it really breaks down things that people are talking about in an everyday sense or like the discussions or arguments even that are happening like on Facebook, breaking down words that people may use in very easy digestible ways. And so I think that's a good book because it's entertaining and it's informative. 
That's Sweet. I'm adding it to my reading list. Um, I can't see why I'm at. Okay, you all can't hear me. So I'm between three books right now. <laughs> of course uh, you are. Go on. <laughs> so I'm a slow reader. I've just given up on trying to go fast. I finished Brittany Cooper's Eloquent Rage. And if there was a prerequisite to understanding my life, just read the book. Um, I think Brittany Cooper is a bad mother. Shut your mouth. And the book is talking about uh, the eloquence of rage that comes from a complete and utter disdain. Do y'all curse on here or no? No? Oh, yeah. This is a podcast. You do what you want. Bullshit. I mean, utter bullshit that women that black women have to go with it. So she's, she's, she's teasing out this piece of being a black feminist. She's both black and woman. And so the issues that she has with white women around whiteness still being very salient, very often with black men, with patriarchy being like, I can't be oppressed. Like I can't be empowered. I'm a black man. I'm like, you got a whole ass male privilege sitting there. Yes, you do. And so she teases out what that looks like for her, but then also what it means for her moving forward and, and, you know, really focusing on the, so you have these, you know, scholarly ideas about what it means, but who are you in relationship to other women? Like that's the, that is the sum of your, of your ethics, you know, is who are you with other women? Like the quality of those relationships matters. Uh, and then I went on to how we get free black feminism and the uh, Kabahi uh, River Collective. Just a lot of good history to hear their stories about how they came up with the name, how they chose to be, where they see uh, black feminisms moving forward. The politics that I just didn't always understand, the undergirdings of some of the stuff, um, that's been really dope. And then the book that I'm just enthralled with right now is at the dark end of the street. Uh, black Women, Rape and Resistance, a new history on the civil rights movement from Rosa Parks to the rise of black power. And that book uh, talks about Rosa Parks in a way I never knew. So I knew Rosa Parks as the saint of the civil rights movement who was so tired she didn't get up off the bus one day. And that is not Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks was a bad woman. She was the um, field secretary for the NAACP, which meant that she was a person who took all the stories um, and all the allegations. So she was the field secretary for the Reese Taylor case, which was a black woman um, around Montgomery. Um, not sure exactly where in Alabama, but she was um, sexually assaulted by like seven guys. And so she was talking about she we they talked us through how black women's uh, activism literally meant put put literally meant putting bodies on the front line, putting jobs um, on the line. And this is at a time when a lot of black women were domestics, were sharecroppers, um, speaking up or even telling your story. The piece about telling your story, uh, telling your truth meant that you could die, that you could be assaulted again, that your husband or your boo or your parents or your children could be harassed, could be put off their job, be put off your land, the physical violence that accompanied that, but then also talking about the movement of black women that really undergirded the uh, Montgomery bus boycott, that it was not so much um, that folks just up and was like, oh, we're tired of riding a bus. It's that bus drivers have been boxing black women in the, in the heads for decades, I mean, for years. And they were just like, you know what? No, no, no. And so while men might've been the forefront that you saw, it was not men doing the work, which we know, but it's fascinating to hear about the transformation that had to take place Rosa Parks to go from radical right to respectable and t like holding that tension that that's what she had to do in order to get us progress and like man it's really fucked up and I get it so I'm between those three some light reading I can see that's great okay no but what you you said it though there's some things about our history we don't know and how many people had been silenced or did not speak up or felt they couldn't in a place of power uh whether it's certain privileges whether it was a color whether it's an ethnic group like it's just uh sometimes history isn't written the way we think it is and I if you study history from a different country um and you know it like I have there's some shit that went down here that really needs to be talked about so thank you for bringing up those are some great reads. Uh, I can't wait. And and we do talk about, a uh, long time ago when we had this old podcast, a little bit about white feminism and like what that means versus 
black women and black feminists. And I don't know if you want to talk on that a little bit more because I think it's an issue I think mm. we should talk about because it looks different and we show up to different places and feminism is a broad spectrum. And if you're not one, I don't know why you live in this world, period. But okay. yeah, yeah. Um, Marvette, you look like you ain't parsed your lips. Did did you want to say something or you want me to say something? Because I can be quiet. I feel like I'm talking too much. <laughs> I, I would say uh, I was just having this conversation with one of my students um, that. Um, so I work um, as a director of a women's resource center, which um, on a college campus, a place for women to come to be affirmed, to be supported. Historically, it would have been the, the primary place you went to report um, a sexual assault. And so now just the work that we do has evolved a little bit. But a lot of conversations that we're having is what does it mean to be a feminist? Um, and students will typically come to me and say, well, black feminism is a new thing, right? Because I can't find much information about it. And now we're just getting to this place where people want to separate and they have no idea of the vast history that it is of feminism and how much of what um, people are taught about feminism and feminism is is from a, a, a white lens um, in that what's often left out of the story is that all the wins, quote unquote, that we got as women, mm-hmm. particularly in the mm-hmm. civil rights movement, came at the cost of folks of color, of women of color, putting them down or, or going to the men in government Um, the white men in government and saying, do you want your daughters and your wives to experience X, Y, Z bad thing? So no, if you don't want that, you need to pass this legislation, but you're not talking about anyone else, but white women, particularly white women who may have come from middle to upper um, class backgrounds. And so what about everyone else who does not fall into that, those categories and that history and the work that they've been doing for decades and decades have been lost. And now because of technology, social media, et cetera, we have more ways to pass the information along. And now we get to see a complete history of what's been going on. Um, but there is a very distinct difference. Um, and I'm being really nice about it. And that's because it's you my daytime. I'm no, really nice not. about it. And I, <laughs> but Joan has something in her spirit because I can see her face. Um <laughs> But I'm sure she wants to add. (laughs) I mean, so when my, so, um, so I was working at a, did a quick little summer stint with an Ivy League institution over the summer. And um, one of my students was like, oh, that's a book on black feminism. How cool is that? And I was like, well, what do you know about it? And she was just like, well, I know it's new. And, um, it sounds really cool. And I was like, well, do you want to know more or not? And so when I think about the differences, I mean, I I think of black, um, black feminism as an emancipation project. I mean, it is absolutely a liberation project. And so, uh, my ex and I, he's a black man, a cishet black man. And so, you know, when we first got together, he was like, Oh no, y'all militant, y'all, y'all this, y'all that, y'all this, y'all that. Uh, and, and so, you know, I don't give a fuck what you say about it. I'm going to be a black feminist slash womanist. And it is what it is because I literally want us all to be free. Right. And that's what black feminism is. And so traditional air quote, traditional feminism was not for everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. My grandmother, great grandmother. I mean, I can count back five generations into enslavement on both sides of my family. Uh, they've always labored. Uh, they've always had to negotiate. They've always had to do those things that white women didn't have to do so that white women could not do those things. Right. And so it looks very different when you're talking about not working versus like being able to hold your own or, um, you know, I might be cis and head, but I'm still responsible for making sure that my LGBT plus friends have freedom and the liberty to do what they want to do and do what they need to do. Um, and so black feminism calls us all in. It says everybody's slip is hanging. So I'm gonna let you know your slip is hanging. That's a black church euphemism for 
you know, your slip ain't supposed to show, but you're supposed to have it on. So when your slip is hanging, somebody taps you on your shoulder and says, hey, your slip is hanging. Black feminism was like, everybody's slip is hanging. Let's let's get those in order. In fact, you can take your slip off, but if you don't want it showing, like, it's showing. Um, and so when I talk to my students about the difference, I tell them, go to the histories. I mean, the histories are very clear about who's included, who's not included. And if folks, are, if, if there's a history of exclusion, it's fraudulent. Um, and I, I can't say that it's been fraudulent um, on black feminism's end. And so that's been good for me. Um, you can because it's, it's not new. It just was never written, right? The access it was not there. Written. Yeah. Which, correct. Which is a function of the whiteness of yeah. mainline feminism, right? And so yeah. that same ex-boyfriend now is like, yes, yes, yes. The hetero patriarchal. And, you know, he's out here living his best life. So I tell people, if he can get on board... Everybody can get on board because no one's trying to oppress you in black feminism. We just want folks to be free. We just want folks to be free. That's all. You know, it's not a minor thing for some people, but yeah. I no, I think I think the conversation and asking these questions is really like I thank you for sharing but that both of you because I really want to say it's not about putting someone in a place or a label, it's just an understanding of what we don't talk about enough. So Absolutely. Well, um, we're going to wrap up because y'all have lives, I'm sure, and so I don't want to keep you all evening. But is there anything we haven't asked yet, Patrice? Anything you want to know more about these lovely ladies who are brilliant and going to build the world in higher ed and student affairs? I think I could talk to them for several more hours, but um, I think we should probably wrap up for the evening. (laughs) All right. We'll end on a... Uh, not a positive note because I don't really care about that but what's bringing you joy what's bringing you um, feel goods these days it could be music it could be what you're doing yeah let's wrap up on that uh, joy yeah I'm back home in Atlanta so I've been hiking in all these luscious trees I've been getting to play with my friends fat babies that brings me joy because fat babies are just so cuddly with them cheeks um I, I call myself a kinfolk coordinator, so coordinating all my kinfolk, blood, bond, all that good stuff. So that's what's bringing me joy right now is, like, living my best life. That's 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 really it, just enjoying the small thing. And my hair is getting real long, so I can do, like, a Beyonce bun now. Love it. That brings me lots of joy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I would echo that. Being a year now out from, you know, dissertating, and graduating now I feel like I can actually enjoy life like it's not just passing by in this haze being able to go to like state fairs and festivals and doing some travel and not have to worry as much about like what am I writing what am I reading actually being able to just be in the moment being able to read for fun again because I'm a big reader and I miss it and now that I I get to do that um the last book I read for fun was the woman in the window um because it's there's a movie coming out and if you like dark like gone girl type of books Mm -hmm. that is the book that is a good read it's a good read um so just is freaking me joy right now that's that's a great way to wrap up i think this has been fun being with y'all so thank you so much uh we'll be sure to include all your deets and information and all the good things you shared with us at the invino fablin podcast so thank you so much we appreciate uh you being with us thank you thanks for having us ciao bye This podcast wants to continue the conversation with women about stories and why. So we would love to hear you tell us what voices, ideas, questions, and random wine facts you hope we'll chat about in a future episode. Find us on Twitter at or on the hashtag InVinoFab. And we'll always welcome love or messages by email at InVinoFabulum at gmail.com. To stay tuned to for the next episode please subscribe to the In Vino Fab podcast via Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Remember, in wine, there is a story. In Vino Fabulum.